0: We've been looking to build a strong Christian marriage and home. And so far, we've laid the foundation and a couple of building blocks. And most recently, we've started to lay our third building block called the Charge. Today is uh, part two of this third block, so I recommend uh, going online and listening to the first part If you haven't yet, um, God has given, through His Word and according to His design, a main charge to the husband and to the wife concerning biblical roles. Concerning roles, the husband is to lovingly lead his wife, and the wife is to respectfully submit to her husband. And these charges are actually the first matter of importance that we conduct at a uh, marriage ceremony in what is called the Declaration of Intent. Uh, Many of you uh, probably remember this. Maybe it's a little blurry because the wedding day is such a big day, and uh, to be honest, it's blurry with me, but these are promises that we make. Once the bride has has walked down the aisle, she's been ushered down the aisle by her father, um, reflecting that, Genesis 2 picture of the Father, Heavenly Father giving Eve to Adam. Um, There's an exchange that takes place. I mean, you're not even up on the stage yet to recite vows. There has to be first this declaration of intent that takes place um, down off the stage, usually. Uh, So, I'll ask the groom, before we come up on stage, before before the the father of the bride gives the bride to the groom, I will ask the groom, will you accept the scriptural charge to lead by loving your wife unconditionally just as Christ unconditionally loves and leads His church, to which He says, I will. And then to the wife, I'll say, will you accept the scriptural charge to respectfully submit to your husband just as the church does to Christ, to which she should respond with, I will. Now, again, not that it would ever happen, but think about this. If either one of them says, I will not, or I'm sorry, I just won't accept that charge, at that point, the ceremony just ends. You've never been to a wedding like that, have you? Yeah, praise God, right? But the ceremony would end right then and there if they said, I will not. Or, sorry, I can't do that. We never go up on stage to recite vows. There's, there's no cake that's ever cut. I mean, uh, that means you're, you're never going to see them shove cake in each other's faces, unfortunately. And then everyone saves their gifts for the next wedding, basically, or returns their gifts to the store. That'd be pretty sad. But Why? Because the roles, why would we just why would we end the ceremony right then and there? Because the roles of the husband and wife are that critical to the health and the functionality of that marriage. If a husband and wife want God's blessing on their marriage, it's not just enough to get married in a church building, you know, or a fancy church building with stained glass windows. You actually have to do marriage God's way. It's not enough to get married in a church building. You actually have to be the church that obeys God's way of doing marriage. That right there is the difference. Doing it God's way or my way is the difference between building your home on the rock or building your home on the sand. Your marriage, your home on the rock or on the sand. And Howard Hendricks said in his book, Heaven Help the Home, a discernment of roles is absolutely indispensable for purposeful living, for marital efficiency, and for family functioning. And with that sobriety in mind, I want to return to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33 this week, where we find one of the clearest statements on marital roles. And we're going to pick it up in verse 21. Verse 21. Uh, where Paul is wrapping up this encouragement to the congregation at Ephesus. And since uh, the the letter to Ephesians was actually an encyclical letter, which meant it was designed to be copied and sent around to the other churches, we could say uh, that um, God wants us to be Spirit-filled too. And Spirit-filled people have, he says, self-control. Spirit-filled people praise God. Spirit-filled people give thanks to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in verse 21, they are subject to one another in the fear of Christ or out of reverence for Christ. So we mutually submit to one another in the body, in the church, right? We should all have a, a mutually submissive servant heart towards one another, I think uh, Mark 9.35 says it well, right? If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you're going to be last, right? He who is first is last. He who is last is first. We have a please-you-first attitude towards one another. However, as we talked about in part one when we looked at the necessity of mutual submission in marriage it does not negate the authority and submission that exists in other structured relationships we have. So, when Paul says, be subject to one another, he's going to basically bounce off of this into these various relationships where submission and authority is required. And Peter does the same exact thing in 1 Peter chapters 2 and 3. So, they both say, we need to mutually submit to one another... And they all have these other uh, relationships where authority and submission is actually the structure of the relationship. Uh, These structured relationships mentioned in the same context of mutual submission in Ephesians and in 1 Peter would be that of children to parents... Uh, Back in their day, it would have been slaves to masters, or today we might look at it as employees to bosses, obey your masters, right? Citizens to government, they talk about that, Um, church members to church leadership, and then wives to husbands. So the wives are not alone in this matter, but let's go ahead and pick it up in verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. But we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is also to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must be see to it that she respects her husband. So, we have started looking at last week in part one, we looked at the necessity of mutual submission, then we started looking at the necessity of marital Roles And again, when we think of a role, I think we should think of a duty or a responsibility rather than a right. The husband's responsibility is to be the the head or the leading initiator in love. And by the way, all of the biblical and ancient extra-biblical uses of the word head indicate that is the case. It's talking about authority and leadership, and that is what is in mind and the wife, and the, the, then dovetailing that as the body to the head is the helpmate in respectful submission. And each spouse, we should note, clearly needs love and respect. We both need love and respect. But based on the roles, the primary roles, there is, these are the primary fitting virtues that are being exhorted. I mean, as a leader, the husband is going to need respect respect. He primarily needs respect. He needs his cup filled with respect. And then the the wife primarily needs her cup filled with love. Now, not being blind to the battle of the sexes and uh, the biblically incompatible trends, ideas of feminism and male chauvinism that are raging today out in the world, and they've been raging since Genesis 3.16 in the Garden of Eden— uh, we started to look at four important defensive principles to remember concerning biblical roles. We're defending biblical roles through these four principles, two of which we looked at in depth last time. And uh, if you have wide margins in your Bible or a room at the top or bottom of Ephesians chapter 5 in your Bible, I would recommend writing these principles down. That's how much uh, I value these four principles. And I've I've taught them several times. I'll continue to teach them as long as I'm alive and in ministry. Uh, number one, roles are biblical, not philosophical. Roles are biblical, not philosophical. And all we're saying by that is that these are God's ideas. This is God, roles are God's idea and not man's. They're not Peter's idea. They're not Paul's idea. These come strictly from the Bible. Uh, man would not make these up, Okay uh number two the second principle is that roles are theological not cultural roles are theological and not cultural the husband and wife's main purpose is to glorify god it's painting a theological picture for the world as to who god is and what he is like marriage parallels the trinitarian oneness and plurality we've looked at that the 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 oneness and plurality of the Godhead and then Christ's relationship with the church, as we just read in Ephesians chapter 5. And this means that roles are not cultural constructs, as feminists must insist, but rather roles were never created at all. Because they have, as Paul argues in the New Testament, they've existed before culture was even a thing. okay? Before culture even came into existence, I mean... Adam and Eve, even before Adam and Eve, they were forever within the concrete nature of the Godhead himself, and reinforced then by the rebar of the order of creation and the events that transpired at creation, and I've got several verses there if you want to look that up later. Uh, The marriage of a man and a woman were designed to reflect the equality, the differences, and the unity in the trinity. And that's why the Trinity poses such a great problem for feminists because they say if you have roles, then you can't be equal. If you're equal, then you can't have roles. Well, just look at the Trinity. Christ submits to the Father. Is Christ not equal with the Father? No, I and the Father are one. They're equal. So the Trinity is a great problem for feminists. The first wave of feminism in the 1800s, it did a lot of good. It was well in establishing equal status and rights between men and women. Isn't that a good thing? right? Women should be equal in status. They should be able to own property, enter into contract, and vote, and all of these different things. But the second and third waves of feminism that came after World War II went too far in that they started to dismantle the nuclear family, and God designed the differences in roles. So, uh, our third principle is roles are functional, not personal. Roles are functional, not personal. And anybody trying to tear down uh, God's design for marriage doesn't get this. The technical term for biblical marriage, the biblical marriage model that we use is complementarianism. Because the husband and wife functionally complete or complement one another through their differences. So the differences between a male and a female aren't intended to harm. They're intended to bring harmony, right? Say we complement one another through our differences. They're like the husband and wife in God's design are like two well-oiled gears that mesh perfectly for the purpose of achieving order and protection and benefits for both of them. And when properly understood, properly applied, they are a help and not a hindrance to that couple, to both of the individuals in that marriage. And we see the same principle in operation in the church body, don't we? Does God, God doesn't give us all the same spiritual gifts or talents or resources or personalities. And praise God he doesn't, right? Praise God he doesn't create with a cookie cutter. That would be horrendous. And that's what cultural Marxism tries to do, by the way. (laughs) But um, God creates diversity so that there is unity. Okay, Because of our differences, we learn to depend on one another. And that's what you see in 1 Corinthians 12. There's many different members of the church body, and God designed it that way so that There would actually be unity and dependence on one another. And, get this, there's no fluidity. We don't choose what members we are, right? That's news for our culture. We are what we are in marriage, as a gender, in the church. We are what we are by the grace of God. How many of you chose your spiritual gift here? I can tell you this, I did not choose mine. I would not have wanted mine, okay? But God uses our weaknesses. That's where he gets his power. That's where he displays his power. So um, he desi- decides what our gifts are in the body, and he, desi- he decides our gender-based roles. And on the subject of functionality, I like the analogy of a good sports team, right? No, no team can be made up of all the same Players in the church, we could not all be preachers, right? <laughs> Thank God. It, 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 on a football team, we can't all be quarterbacks. It would you wouldn't have a team, right? You've got to have co- a quarterback. You've got to have running backs, fullbacks, linemen, wide receivers, kickers. If you don't, if we're all quarterbacks, then there's no team, which means you're not going you're not gonna have a winning, you're not going to function, you're not going to win anything. You're not going to be effective. So um, it's also true, though, that every team needs a captain and a coach. Have you thought of that? So not only do you have these diversity of players, you've got a captain who is part of the team and then a coach. And the captain and the coach sort of work together to get to know the strengths of each team member thus allowing them to manage the team well to call the right plays in the right situations and i like to think of the husband in marriage as the captain on the team he's part of the team but he's the captain of the team who with the rest of the team submits to christ as the head coach and you can cross reference that with first peter 5 where the the pastor is a shepherd yes but he's an under shepherd he's kind of like a team captain but he's he's an under shepherd of the what Peter calls the chief shepherd, who is Christ. So just kind of a neat analogy. It's amazing how many times we can look at uh, what's going on here with biblical roles and then see the parallel somewhere actually in the local church structure. It's just it's amazing. So as a family team captain, as a, if I look at my, my family as a, as a, from a captain's perspective, okay, I'm trying to figure out, even already now, my kids are six and younger, I'm already trying to figure out what their strengths and weaknesses are, because I want to know what part God has given them, what, what purpose they're going to play on our family team. Who's good at what? What's their strengths? What's their weaknesses? I want to know what part they're going to play in our family, in the church, and in the world. Now, the fourth principle is that roles are free, not forced. Roles are free, not forced. This means the woman is not a, a doormat. She is not subjugated. She, it's free. It's not forced. So in the Bible, the husband's never told to command his wife's respect. He's never to command her to submit even. He's just told to love his wife, right? The wife's never told to command her husband's love. The husband is commanded by God to love his wife. The wife is commanded by God to respect her husband. Neither spouse is to force the other to meet their divine duties. Now think about this parallel in the church. Church leadership, do they lord it over the flock? They force people to play on the worship team, force them? No, we, as church leadership... Rely on your walk with God to discern what God's called you to do. And we try to identify your gifts and all of that and get you plugged in. But yes, we're not lording it over you. Like Church leadership should never lord it over you and force you to do things, force you to give money, anything like that. Look at the Trinity, too. There's another parallel here. The son is obedient to the father, but he's not a servile doormat, is he? See, see, it's not some unwilling subjugation, but it's free and voluntary submission on the part of Christ. Christ voluntarily submits to the Father in marriage. No one's going to go anywhere by demanding that their spouse perform their responsibility before they perform their own responsibility. That's how you end up in what Dr. Emerson Eggerichs in his book, Love and Respect, calls the crazy cycle. Some of you guys went through this uh, study with us a couple years ago, huh? It's a good study. It's worth going through. In our in our Godship ways, to use John Labar's uh, terminology, we tend to operate by this conditional system of: if you scratch my back, then I'll scratch yours. If you scratch mine, I'll scratch yours. We tend not to scratch someone else's back until they've scratched ours first. That's what Godshippers do. That's a new term. Um, Anyway, if we all operated that way, nobody's going to get their backs scratched, right? If you have to scratch my back first, I'm not going to scratch yours. You're operating the same way. No one's getting their back scratched. In marriage, I won't love her until she respects me. How's that working out? I won't respect him until he loves me. If you get into that mindset, it it ends up in this this crazy cycle where without love, she reacts without respect. Without respect, he reacts without love, and you're just spinning. Nobody's getting their cups filled. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2 tells us how to stop the craziness, stop the crazy cycle. It says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your husbands so that even if any of them Aren't, are disobedient to the Word of God to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So Peter says, if you want to win your husband's love, respect him, even if he doesn't deserve it. because your respect is going to motivate his love and his love, I mean, if, you, if, if, if you're a husband and, and you're not respected, your love is going to motivate her respect. That's what we call the energizing cycle, or Dr. Emerson Egricks does. But someone has to say, I don't care if I get my back scratched. I'm going to scratch their back anyway. Okay? Someone has to move first, and it's always the mature one. My wife and I can tell you that this, this works I've done things where I was not worthy of respect, and yet my wife continued to respect me by refusing to make harsh comments and bring it up again. She showed me respect. That undeserved respect motivates me to want to be a better, loving leader, because a woman like that deserves better. I don't deserve her respect, but she's respecting me anyway. Gosh, she deserves a better husband than that. Just this week I did the dishes for her and, and I readied the coffee pot before I, I left that morning and, and she was so thankful. You know, you're such a great husband. She, you know, texted me. And, and and you know what? It made me want to do that more. Guess what I did the next day? I did the dishes and readied the coffee pot for her again. It just made me. I don't know. It's this energizing cycle. On our anniversary last week, we were reminiscing about our first year of marriage, and she reminded me about an instance that I had completely forgot about, where in our first year of marriage, uh, we were loading the car to go somewhere, and she said something that uh, that, that wasn't very respectful, and I can't even remember what it was. I didn't ask her what it was. But I guess I responded in love. And my unconditional love that day made her never want to do that again. So my love actually motivated her respect going forward, and it stops that crazy cycle. Where you want to get in your marriage is the rewarded cycle. It's the cycle where you habitually love and respect your spouse regardless of their love and respect. Regardless of. If you keep loving, and you keep respecting. Even when your spouse doesn't deserve it, that crazy cycle never starts to spin very fast or very long. You keep it at bay. You keep each other's cups filled. So uh, that's a little bit about, uh, I guess, caring for your marriage. Now, let's go ahead and Look at 1 Peter 3, 3-7, uh, through 7, another major passage on, on marriage. We've looked at the first two verses already. Um, now we're going to read this, and then we're going to talk a bit about each role specifically. Number, uh, Verse 3, sorry. Your adornment must not be merely the external. Braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on apparel. Look at that. If you take that literally... It would say, your adornment not, must not be merely external, putting on apparel. So, he's not speaking literally. Don't start taking all of the, you know, and don't start unbraiding your hair and slipping your bracelets off. I've heard of cup women doing that and throwing them out the car window on the highway when they heard, that, heard about this verse. Okay? Uh, if you take it literally, you're not going to wear clothes. So, uh, that wouldn't be good. Verse 4, but it should be, your adornment should be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, the holy women of former times, who hoped in God, also used to adorn themselves, being subject to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have proved to be her children, if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, Live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir. Ooh, equality right there. A fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. See the equality and then you see a warning right there. But uh, we're gonna look at each role a little bit now. We're gonna break it, break them down a little bit. Um, first, we're gonna look at the wife's charge, which is respectful submission. Now, when Peter Uh, What Peter describes here, again, could be summed up by saying that a wife's beauty should not just come from her time spent in a beauty parlor, but time spent with Jesus. It's not saying you can't wear jewelry. It's not saying you can't look nice. I think you should dress nice. I think that you should intentionally look nice for your spouse at times. Just dress up just because of it, just to show your wife or your your husband that you still care, you still want to look good for them. Nothing wrong with that. That's excellent. But if you you take Peter's commands here too literally, it's going to mean you're not going to wear clothes at all, right? But (laughs) I just think it's funny because people start... They get into legalism here. This verse has been used for a lot of legalism, right? I can't wear jewelry. I have to wear $7, you know, clothes from Goodwill and whatever. Okay, It's not a legalistic dress code. It's just like Proverbs 31.30. He's saying your inner beauty is more important than your outer beauty because the inner beauty is going to last. The outer beauty, it fades, right? Gravity takes over. Um, The inner beauty, Peter says, is going to lead to the silent preaching of a lovely life. I like that. Being a wife God's way means you're not throwing your weight around, you're not trying to manipulate your husband into doing things your way all the time. Um, you you as a godly wife place importance on inner beauty. A wife like that, Peter says, is a true daughter of Sarah, a daughter of Sarah. Now, Peter uses Sarah's example from uh, Genesis 18-12 where she called Abraham Lord. Maybe your translation says master. Now, this doesn't mean every wife has to call her husband Lord or yes, sir, no, sir, to his orders or something like that. In fact, Sarah, when Sarah said this, when she called Abraham Lord, she said it under her breath with a little touch of sarcasm, to be honest with you, because she was being sarcastic at the promises of God, like, yeah, right, you know how old I am? I'm not going to bear children. You know. So, so anyway, the sarcasm wasn't directed at Abraham but at the promise, but she says it under her breath. And isn't it true that the things that we say under our breath tend to be more representative of what's actually in our hearts, what's truly in our hearts, that we might not say out loud. So you see Sarah's heart and that she respected and prized Abraham as her protector and provider and her leader. She's saying, Abraham's my man. He cares for me. I love him. I trust him. I trust his leadership. And you see this, don't you, in the way that she followed Abraham to nowhere, right? (laughs) So God calls Abraham to leave Ur and go to the land of Canaan. God didn't tell Abraham exactly where he's going. I mean, it's like she had to just up and follow him and trust Trust his walk with God. It's it's amazing. It's, Sarah and Abraham have become a great example to my wife and I. Sarah leaving the familiarities of Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. Uh, before my wife and I married, I told my wife that I had an inkling. The Lord's gonna call me and He's calling me into ministry, and I didn't know where I was gonna end up. And so while we're engaged, but before we we were actually wed, I asked her if she was willing to follow me wherever God called me. Now, she said yes. And now that, that doesn't mean that I drag her along wherever we go without consulting her, right? You understand that. When every step of the way that we have, we've moved from Alliance to LaGrange, Wyoming, to Santiago, Chile, to back to Alliance, to Shadrach, Nebraska, I mean, wherever the God, God has started working, whenever he starts working in my heart, I'll let her know, And then we'll pray about it, and then we walk through it together. And we go there with one heart and one mind. And my wife is a true daughter of Sarah, and I'm so thankful for that. But I share that because uh, maybe some of you guys have a similar situation. But uh, godly wives also, we should know, primarily care for the home and the children. While we're here, we have to consider the first and basic Foundational descriptions of Adam and Eve's roles in Genesis and the exhortations given to men and women throughout the scripture. Okay, while well, both of their roles are going to overlap at times, it's very clear that the husband is primarily the leader, the protector, and the provider. While the wife as the helpmate and mother is primarily responsible for homemaking and nurturing children. Now don't throw tomatoes at me because this is the word of God. This is not me. And that's what gives me the confidence to say that this morning. To say the things that I am. My job is to preach the word of God. Society hates this, doesn't it? See, society bucks this idea as some sort of social patriarchal construct, but it's very painful for our culture to buck against it because it's built into us physiologically by natural law, okay? Only women, (laughs) and this is getting lost today even, who would have guessed, only women have the proper equipment to give birth and nurture children, right? while men were given strength to protect and provide. So while she's eight months pregnant or nursing a two-week-old child, how convenient that God made the man the protector and the provider. You see how they dovetail? Even physiologically, these roles make sense. Uh, Now, again, this doesn't mean that women cannot work outside of the home if and when appropriate. Uh, Go back and read Proverbs 31. That woman is a a powerful woman. She's industrious. She's resourceful. She is fully engaged in in working. She's, She's buying fields. She's planting vineyards. It's amazing. However, she does not do those things at the expense of her primary responsibility of caring for the home and caring for her children. So She works, but not at the expense of the home And the children, and I say this gently, but what I think the church needs today, living in the last days of itching ears, we don't like to hear this kind of stuff, but what I think the church needs today is a rather rude awakening of the biblical homemaking and nurturing responsibility of the woman. Children need their moms to be moms. Especially in those early formative years staying home to take care of your kids might mean a pay cut for a while but far greater are the social ills resulting from motherless homes than from a temporary seasonal pay cut those children are going to grow up they're going to be out of the home just as quick as can be you know it's just a short little season temporary pay cut Guys, we tend to underestimate just how much work it takes to be a stay-at-home mom. I swear my wife works harder than I do as a stay-at-home mom. We underestimate how much work it is. That is work, to be a stay-at-home mom. And we underestimate the influence of the home in making disciples and that godliness being cultivated in the church. There's a saying out there that that says the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. You better understand the enemy. The enemy gets that. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And I I look at my wife's nurturing and homemaking like a full-time discipleship ministry. She is in ministry 24/7 and her role requires just as much grace as any other. I mean, her, her ministry requires just as much grace as any other ministry out there, if not more, just to be a stay-at-home mom. Now, 1 Timothy 2.15 says a woman, that is a mother, is going to be saved or preserved through childbearing. And that is Obviously not talking about salvation, like this is how you get to heaven, through bearing children. But Paul, in response to this false teaching called the New Women Movement, going on in, in Ephesus, Paul is responding to this, uh, this movement that was undercutting, undercutting women's roles in home, and marriage, and in bearing children. And he's basically defending biblical womanhood. He says, you're going to be saved or preserved through childbearing. So in that same context, he's talking about Adam and Eve, uh, and uh, especially Eve. But for one, I think he's emphasizing the unique and important role of childbearing, which the women were you know, casting off, by alluding to Eve's having to bear a child in order to see the promised Savior realized. Remember, through her seed, the Savior was going to be born. She's going to be saved through childbearing. She actually had to bear a child in order to see the Savior, in order to have a Savior. Does that make sense? Okay, so he's emphasizing her unique and important role in childbearing while everybody else was trying to tear it down. And then he's also saying, I think that she's going to preserve or save her purpose for which God had created her. While they're trying to cast off childbearing, Paul's saying, you're going to find, that's where you're going to find so much fulfillment. That's where you're going to find so much meaning. For me to say that, and for a woman to accept that, that takes guts, doesn't it? You're going to find so much meaning and fulfillment in accepting your responsibility. And I think that's what part of what Peter means. By saying, you are Sarah's daughters if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Basically, don't fear the social pressure around you. Don't don't fear the social pressure. Don't fear those other ladies out there who might think less of you for being a wife God's way. Because they will, and they'll make fun of you for being a wife God's way. Don't fear a pay cut by investing in your kids for a short season. Fear God. Fear God. Fear God's word and trust God to bless your God-honoring decisions. Titus 2 verse 4 says, As you, you, you adorn the word of God through your homemaking and nurturing. You're adorning the Word of God. You're beautifying it for the world. You're a light to the world. I think I saw this lived out recently. There was a Christian news anchor lady on CNN explaining live on TV why she was leaving her job as a CNN news anchor to go be at home because she was forced home during COVID. And it was while she was forced to be home during the COVID lockdowns she realized this is where I really need to be. I quote, I couldn't be, she said, I just can't be who I need to be for my family, basically by doing what I'm doing. She said, whatever you do every day, it's important work. But at the end of the day, someone else is going to sit in this seat, and I'm going to leave, and the show's going to go on just as it should. Nobody else is going to be my kid's mom. Nobody else is going to be my husband's wife or my parents' children. She said, I need to be fully present there. I want to let you know that I think we all have these very unique roles, you included. She's talking to the people in the audience, that only you can fulfill. And those are some of my roles, and I need to give them that space and energy. Unquote. Isn't that amazing? Well, that was a bold witness, bold Christian witness, live on CNN without fear. I thought it was pretty amazing. Let's look now at the husband's charge. charge. Loving headship. Headship is a term signifying authority and leadership. Just like your boss is the head of your company, your head is in control of your body, so the husband is the head of the wife. So uh, marriage is like a dance, but in a dance, someone still has to lead, even if it's a 51-49 margin. It's not 50-50. It's at least 51-49. And God has given the responsibility of leading this beautiful dance to the husband. However, this does not mean that he rules over his wife harshly. Uh, it doesn't mean that he gets to command his wife around like a tyrant, right? Just like church leadership. He is meek. He's a servant leader. He leads by example, and he leads in love sacrificially. And Peter in 1 Peter 3 says he actually leads by loving, living with his wife in an understanding way. Now, Uh, There's a book that's come out. It's about 50,000 pages long. It's called the book Understanding Women. Uh, That's what he means by that. You have to read this book. And uh, it's constantly uh, amended and revised. Just kidding. Um, That's not what Paul's saying. To live with your wife in an understanding way, you don't have to read some giant book. It just means you live with her in light of her natural role and in light of the grace given to her by God. As an equal heir. So by nature, she is weaker physically, designed to operate in a more vulnerable role. Therefore, she is to be prized and cherished. That's what it looks like to live with her in an understanding way. She has this more vulnerable role. She's she's weaker than you typically. She is to be prized, she is to be cherished, not exploited and not taken advantage of. And then you live with her by, by grace, meaning she's to be honored. She's to be treated as an equal heir of eternal life. See, roles have nothing to do with status, do they? Social status. She's equal. Women are to be honored. And Peter says, if you don't, your prayers are going to be hindered. It's an amazing statement, isn't it? It's an amazing warning. The floor of heaven becomes bronze to the man who doesn't treat his wife well. powerful warning if i'm not treating my wife well i can't expect god to hear my prayers what peter's teaching here actually would have been a dangerous idea in his day because in his day the emperor was the one who determined people's social status including the women and the women were not equal status and I was just watching a video this last week and it said women were forced to sit up in the nosebleed sections at the Colosseum and they had to use separate entrances and exits. So you talk about the Bible actually elevating the woman, being countercultural, right? It was revolutionary to the women's value, what Peter is saying in his day. Now, concerning man's primary responsibility to provide, I want to say that one of the biggest problems men have Today is to think that if they provide for their wife and their family materially, then they've done enough. I feel like that's it. And providing is good. If we don't provide for our families, the Bible says we're worse than an unbeliever. But we must not confuse providing a living with actually sharing a life together. Think about that. Don't confuse providing a living with sharing a life together. Chuck Swindoll tells of a man who lost his 42-year-old wife and the mother of his kids. 42 years old, he lost her, and at the graveside, he was weeping on Charles Swindoll's shoulder, saying, I gave her everything but myself. Nice car, the nice home. I gave her everything but myself. I gave her things, but I didn't give her my time, my attention, and my ear to listen as she spoke. That's, that's pretty graphic. That's pretty sad. That was, that's a wake-up call to us men. Many men are very good leaders while they're dating. They're, they, they take a leadership role in the dating relationship. They're the one calling the woman. They're, she, he's, he's making decisions. He's pl- planning dates. He's setting goals. He's opening the car door for her. He's buying flowers. He's treating her like a queen while they're dating. And then they get married and, and, and they act like We, men, act like providing is enough, and then we start to treat our wife like she's our mom. I've provided, therefore I'm going to go home, sit in my recliner, and she's going to do everything else. She's going to serve me, basically. Providing things is only a small part of what a husband is called to do. As a result of the Husband's example and his leadership, our wives and our family, should become more and more sanctified in Christ-likeness. We're to provide materially, but also spiritually. Godly husbands are also good managers. That's the next main point. They're good managers. And we all know there's a difference between good managing and bad managing, which would be more like controlling everything. Right? Management doesn't mean you do everything. Management doesn't mean you control everything. Good managers are stewards who p- can properly delegate authority and responsibility. I say that because in desiring to carry out biblical roles, there is an extreme and unhealthy uh, version of codependency where the husband uh, needs to be needed for everything and the wife who can't make any decisions on her own without the husband has to ask him for permission for everything. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about true complementarianism. Wise and good husbandry is going is to be balanced. I've had occasions in my own marriage where I had nothing to do with a decision, but I overlooked it because I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to be that controlling husband that has to control every single decision that goes through our household. Right, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna trust my Proverbs 31 women to make wise decisions A well, woman to make wise decisions. Sorry, that shouldn't have been plural. <laughs> I saw some faces out there. Um, wise and good husbandry is balanced. It 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 refuses to be a controller and and, and trusts trusts his wife. One of the most memorable excerpts from Chip. Uh, Ingram's book, Marriage That Works, again, we got free copies out there for you. Uh, he talked about how men need to be aware of being PC husbands. There's the politically correct husband who, in fear of being called a bigot, refuses to step up and lead. He refuses to be a man. The other is the pseudo-Christian husband who is more of a tyrant, and he throws his weight around. He, His idea of leading the family is basically throwing his weight around, telling everybody what to do. He doesn't actually lead his family in worship or Christ-likeness. He just barks orders and, you know, commands, commands his wife to respect him kind of guy. See, neither one of those PC husbands is the real deal. The real deal is a loving servant leader. He leads by example. Growing up in front of the television watching Homer Simpson and Tim Taylor, Tim the toolman Taylor on home improvement. Those are those are my images in my head as a kid growing up of what a man is, right? He's a knucklehead, he's a lust-driven knucklehead. So I've had to retrain myself to see men biblically. Biblical men, godly men are good men. They're virtuous. They're intelligent. They're wise. They're sacrificial. They war against sin. They want to lead their families in the things of God. They want to pass on the things of God to their children. They want to be teachers. They're cultivators of good in their home. They're sacrificial. I tried to define husbandry this morning. husbandry is the careful and prayerful management or cultivation of a household to see it flourish in every good way for God's glory. Husbandry I like to think of as cultivating probably because of crops and you know farms and you're cultivating you're in a management role over the operation, and you're cultivating that family to see that it flourishes and produces fruit and glorifies God. And one of the best examples that I'll close with of the real deal husband is from our Art of Marriage study going on on Sunday nights. It's about Dr. Wayne Grudem and his wife, Margaret. Uh, Wayne Grudem served uh, for 20 years on faculty. At Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, before he moved to Phoenix, ceremony or ceremony seminary in 2001, and while they were living in Chicago, uh, his wife Margaret was in a serious car accident, and from on, there on, she began to just experience chronic pain. And a few years later, after experiencing chronic pain, uh, there was a friend of theirs offered offered them their home in Phoenix, Arizona for a vacation. And so, well, they they, they took up the offer, obviously, and they're on vacation in Phoenix, and while they're there, Margaret didn't have any chronic pain that she was used to. However, as soon as they went home to Chicago, the pain returned immediately. And then they thought, well, maybe that was a fluke. So they go back down to Phoenix for vacation again, and the pain goes away. They return home, there's the pain again. It was... The dry and arid climate down there really helped her pain. So, having discovered a seminary there in Phoenix, they, they started to pray about maybe we should move there. And Wayne's just uh, reading through his Bible. He comes across Ephesians chapter 5 where it says, women are to, uh, or, sorry, Husbands are to love their own wives as their own bodies. And so he says to his wife, Margaret, if I, if I felt the pain that you're feeling... Would you move to a different climate for the sake of my own body? Would I move to a different climate for the sake of my own body? And she just kind of laughed, right? Like, yeah, like it wouldn't take me a minute to make that decision. I'd be gone in a heartbeat. But at the same time, she didn't want Wayne to move just for her, right? So the Lord was really blessing his ministry in Chicago, and she had a strong sense they shouldn't leave just for health reasons. And so... They started to pray about it more. They were, they were praying about it daily. and um, Finally, on a walk one day, she said, Wayne, I've decided what I think about Phoenix Sem- Seminary. And Wayne was excited. All right, she's made up her mind. And she said, I've decided you have to make the decision. <laughs> she had a biblical conviction too. It felt biblical and it felt right to him that she deferred to his leadership and out of love for her as his own body. They moved there, and his ministry is more blessed than it's ever been. It's a pretty powerful and beautiful story, isn't it? Now, with this series, I've been presenting uh, several precise applicable challenges at the end of each message, at the end of each message, and today, I want to challenge those who actually aren't married. Those who may be dating or thinking about marriage. Maybe you're engaged. And my challenge to you is to make a purity covenant. Maybe you've already blown the purity aspect most people do in their dating before marriage, right? Make a purity covenant from here on out. If if, if you're the man and you're listening to me, you need to initiate that purity covenant in your relationship. I had to do the same early on in my relationship with my wife while we started dating. Initiate a purity covenant, and you be the one to do it, and I'll tell you why. Because, number one, you will regret not staying pure until marriage. It's going to make your wedding night special. Number two, trust is being built during the dating stage. Your lack of self-control before marriage creates a lack of trust while married. Number three, without the man setting boundaries, and Swindoll talks about this in his book, there is a weird phenomenon that occurs when roles actually get reversed during marriage. I don't know what it is, but somehow the roles get reversed. It starts to set the tone for the marriage because the man in dating has not stepped up and been the godly man that he's called to be. So that's my challenge. And we're going to close with a song right now called Lead Me by Sanctus Real.